You're listening to the Formation Church Podcast. Formation exists to be a safe place for hurting people to find healing relationship with Jesus. For more information about the ministry of Formation in Salt Lake City, Utah, visit our website at formationslc.com. Well, last week, if you weren't here and you haven't heard the podcast, um, I started a two-part message. So this is really one sermon in two parts to avoid it being like an hour and a half long. And so the title of this two-part message is Tactical Living in Troubled Times, and it comes from a really important text in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 22. And as we established last week, we are living in troubled times. I don't know that anyone would truly dispute that. And it should never surprise us when we experience trouble of any kind, because in John 16, 33, Jesus promised, in this world, you will have trouble. Now, the specific nature of the trouble that we experience has a tendency to ebb and flow from generation to generation, but what is consistent is that we're always going to experience some degree of trouble in this life. And so as a result of this promise from Jesus in John 16, we're leaning into this big idea. Troubled times demand tactical living. Troubled times demand tactical living. Now, if you were here last week or you heard the sermon, then you'll remember that when we say something is tactical, what we are really saying, if we track that word back to its root, is we're saying that it is artfully arranged. So, To be tactical means to be positioned for fruitfulness. It means to be positioned to be productive and to live a beautiful life in the eyes of God. And so the question that we're sitting with is this, how do we live artfully arranged lives as a community? How do we, in the midst of all the trouble that goes on around us and within us, how do we live artfully arranged lives as a community? And I think that's a timely question for us as a community because If you really think about it and you've been here for any amount of time, you know that we have been through so much as a church. Like in just the last five years that we have existed, we have worshiped in four different locations. That's a lot if you are new to church. We have survived a global pandemic. We have ping-ponged between in-person and online worship. We have shut down and relaunched with a new identity. We have seen people come to faith. We have sadly seen friends leave the faith. We have had new people join our community. And we've had many people leave our community. We've been through a lot. And oftentimes, the amount of trouble, if you will, that we have experienced as a church is enough to truly destroy a church. But by God's grace, we're still here. And the good news is, in addition to this warning from Jesus that life will always be filled with its share of trouble, he also promises that he has overcome, ultimately, the trouble that we experience. He has promised that he will never leave us, and then he has given us the scriptures to teach us how to live artfully arranged lives so that we can flourish even in troubled times. And so to that end, uh, we are looking in these verses at four marks of spiritually tactical living from the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5. Now, I want you to remember that these verses are Paul framing very specific marks of spiritual maturity that are essential if we're going to live these artfully arranged lives. And so just to recap what we covered last week, uh, we started with verses 12 to 13. Let me read these to you again. Paul says, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to give recognition 
to those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you, and to regard them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So we summarized this first mark as respect for leaders. So remember that in Paul's absence, new leaders had emerged, but some in the church were reluctant to recognize them as such. And so Paul had to tell them that they needed not only to recognize these leaders, but also to respect them very highly because of their sacrificial labor. And so we spent the majority of our time talking about how we can not only honor the spiritual leaders that God places in our lives, but how we can all work together to build a more honoring and respectful culture in general. And so we talked about the importance of expressing gratitude. We talked about the importance of conveying our needs and assuming positive intent. Troubled times demand tactical living. And if we're going to live spiritually tactical lives, we must practice respect for leaders. Now, here's the second mark that we're going to jump into today. Mark number two is this, care for others. Care for others. Listen to verse 14. Paul says, And we exhort you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. Now, I think that that last phrase is an excellent summary of really everything that Paul's saying in these two verses. Always pursue what is good. Now, that word good there in its context means morally excellent. So Paul's saying always pursue what is good for one another. So what that means is in every situation, in every interaction, what we are after in one another's lives is always good. And I want you to notice in this list of things that Paul says how differing needs invite different responses. So Paul says that if a person is idle, that we should warn them. Now that word idle is translated from a Greek word that means disorderly or not submitting to discipline. And this was a reference, we know from the rest of 1 Thessalonians, to those in this community who were unwilling to do their part. If you are in a community, like the way we've always said it is like, we're a family. In a family, everyone has to do their part. And there were some in this community, as there are in virtually every community on the planet, that were not doing their part. Now, in their situation, we learn earlier in this letter that there were able-bodied members who refused to work, and instead, they were leeching financially off of the community, completely capable of having a job, completely capable of caring for themselves, caring for them, their families, completely capable of earning their own living, but they didn't because they were just taking money from the church. Now, that's not a huge problem in our church. But in our situation, it could be someone who only wants to consume ministry, without contributing in ways that our community needs. And every community has needs, and it isn't just my responsibility or our leader's responsibility, it's our responsibility to contribute in the ways that our church needs. And so if someone is idle in that way, Paul says they need to be warned. But notice, not everybody needs to be warned. He says if someone is discouraged, they need to be comforted. The discouraged person needs an encouraging presence that will bring them comfort. Times of trouble have a way of leading to significant discouragement. And significant discouragement that is not met with comfort drives despair. And despair moves us to a place where we are in danger of giving up. And so Paul says someone in that place needs to be lifted up and encouraged. If someone is weak, they need to be helped. 
Now, the weakness that Paul most likely has in mind here are those who were drowning in the religious legalism from which they had just come out. So there were people that were coming from a very legalistic religious culture that were coming to the way of Jesus, and they were having a hard time letting go of their old ways. The guilt, the shame, the performance for the sake of earning, it was very hard for them to let go. And so Paul says, man, you've got to strengthen these people. And finally, Paul says, man, even if people do something evil to you, don't repay evil in return. So just notice how these differing needs invite different responses. And I think there's a couple of implications in this for you and I. The first is that all of this reminds us that nobody grows alone. Nobody grows alone. Paul's words teach us about the nature of spiritual community, which is helpful because one of the primary motives that drives people to churches is community. Um, Every single week almost, I meet with someone who is new to our church, and over and over again, what I hear from people when I ask them, like, what, what brings you to formation? I hear people say all the time, I'm looking for community, which is good. God designed us for that. But it's also important that we are crystal clear on the nature of the community to which God desires us to be a part in a church. It's a spiritual community, and it's about so much more than just having a group of friends with which to hang out. You can find that in a countless number of venues, but the specific nature of spiritual community is that it serves a formational purpose in our lives. People who will warn us when we're idle, comfort us when we're discouraged, and help us when we're weak because they are always looking for our good in all situations. So we can't grow alone. Secondly, we need to pay attention to how this care that we're called to is a two-way street. So on the one end, we have to be willing, each of us, to provide this care to one another. And on the other end, we have to be willing to receive it. And we have to have both. Because think about it. It takes courage to warn someone of potential harm, doesn't it? You see someone idle in some way, and as a friend, you want their good, and so you say, like, man, I'm... Lord, help me, I'm going to speak into this. That's a really scary thing to do. What if they reject what you say? What if they're hurt or they're offended or it in some way harms the relationship? So it takes courage and discernment to do this well. It also takes compassion and sacrifice to comfort and to help. So that's on the one end. But on the other end, it takes humility to receive the loving warning of a friend or a spiritual leader. Not everyone receives that well. It takes brave vulnerability to be open with others when we're discouraged, when we're feeling weak. And so in order for this to work the way that we are called to and we're presented with it here, we need a commitment to both of these things. And all of this is going to demand patience. I'll tell you that there's one thing I don't ever pray for. I never pray for patience. Because I don't know about you, I've just noticed God doesn't just dispense that like fairy dust. He just puts the most irritating situations in your life and goes, all right, this is how it comes. So notice Paul says, be patient with everyone. So all joking aside, one of the reasons patience is one of the fruit of the Spirit. And one of the reasons we're called to community is so that we can learn to be patient. And sometimes we have a tendency because we're so far removed that we forget just how diverse the early church was. It was extreme, so much deeper than most of our churches are today. They weren't just ethnically diverse, but also socially. So in these young communities, there were people from different religious backgrounds, people of different political conviction, different social uh, backgrounds. There was a class system 
in place as well. And all of these people are pressing into community together. There wasn't like a, a church for low-class people and a church for high. All of these people are trying to figure out how do we be patient with one another and love one another well. Now just contrast that with where we are as a Christian culture. We're not there. We struggle to even be patient with a decision that we don't agree with. We struggle to be patient with someone that might have a different conviction than our own. And furthermore, and this really concerns me, I've noticed that more and more we justify our lack of patience with one another by psychologizing it. And what I mean by that is it is becoming increasingly common to conflate everything that makes us uncomfortable with being unsafe. And so I'll give you an example. Maybe, maybe someone speaks a warning into my life. I don't, I don't know about you. I've had friends that have done that in my life so many times. And I can tell you this, every single time that someone's done this, hey, I see this thing going on in your life or this behavior, I'm concerned it's going to be harmful to you, I love you, I want God's best for you, and so I just wanted to bring this up. Every time I've had a conversation like that, it has been deeply uncomfortable. Now here's what is becoming increasingly common. Rather than just humbly receive that warning and respond accordingly, I also have the option to claim that this person has made me feel unsafe and I can remove myself from community. And that's a problem. Because discomfort alone doesn't indicate danger. You can be both safe and very uncomfortable. And providing and receiving care is always going to come with some amount of rub. And that rub is one of the chief means that God uses to form us in his image. And so the invitation in this is to patiently embrace rather than resist that rub. Troubled times demand tactical living. If we're going to live spiritually tactical lives, we must practice care for others. Now here's a third mark. Number three is communion with God. Communion with God. Look at verse 16. Paul says, Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, notice there how Paul shifts his attention from our relationships with one another to our relationship with God. He highlights three spiritual practices that drive us deeper in communion with God. Rejoicing, prayer, and thanksgiving. So let's just hit these real briefly, one at a time. The subject of joy and rejoicing, the rejoicing it produces, is a very common topic for Paul, both in this letter and in many of his other letters, particularly in Philippians. But in our own day, with so much rise in things like depression, this subject can be very, very hard, particularly if we misunderstand what it is that he's saying. Here's what I mean. Paul's command to rejoice always in no way means that our circumstances are always going to feel joyful. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't grieve. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be honest about what's hard and what's broken in our world. That's not what Paul is saying here. One commentator says it like this. He says, To rejoice always is to see the hand of God in whatever is happening and to remain certain of God's future salvation. Here's how I would say it. The key to joy is the conviction that God's always working. The key to joy 
is the conviction God's always working. Which means that even on your darkest day, God's up to something. It might feel like hell, but God's up to something. And joy grows from that conviction. And as a result, we can pray constantly. Now, that doesn't mean that we never do anything other than pray. This is where I think especially some ancient monks misinterpreted Paul's intent here, where there was this attempt to only ever pray. And that's not really what the language here indicates. It means to pray with unflagging resolve. It's the commitment to talk to God about everything and in everything. Now, sadly, prayer is historically one of the most challenging spiritual practices for Christians. My guess is many of us would agree with that. Prayer is not easy. But thankfully, Jesus taught his first disciples how to pray. And to that end, next week, we're going to start a seven-week series called Our Father. And we are going to spend these seven weeks studying the Lord's Prayer. And the great hope for this series is that we would learn from Jesus himself how we can do exactly what Paul calls us here to, to pray constantly. Now, finally, notice that Paul says, give thanks in everything. Now, the language there is very important because Paul doesn't say, give thanks for everything. There are some things in your life you don't need to be thankful for. You shouldn't be thankful for. The tragedy, the trauma, the difficulty, the hardship. You don't have to be thankful for those things. Paul says to be thank- give thanks in everything. So if the key to joy is the conviction that God is always at work, then thanksgiving is our expression of gratitude for whatever good we see. One of the most powerful ways to strengthen your experience of God's love for you and one of the most powerful practical ways to combat so much of the melancholy that so easily invades our minds is to practice both the recognition and the expression of gratitude to God. And for us to do that, it requires at least three things. First, you have to express your desire to see goodness. And what I mean by that is we have to ask the Holy Spirit to direct our attention to where he has been good to you. We ask him to do that. I don't, I don't know if you've noticed this. Trouble is easy to identify, right? You don't have to like, oh, I need, think I need to spend 24 hours in silent reflection to figure out what's been hard in my life. No, you're very aware of it. It hurts. It's front of mind. It's irritating and agitating. What isn't easy to see is the good hand of God. And the Holy Spirit, Scripture says, is our helper. He wants to help us see. And James said that sometimes we don't have things because we don't ask God for it. So maybe one of the reasons that we're not seeing the goodness of God in our lives is we're not asking him to help us see it. So first, we have to express our desire to see his goodness. Secondly, we have to examine the day for God's goodness. And so we just, as we've talked about with the prayer of examine, we replay the day from beginning to end, and we are looking for every expression of God's good grace. Big things, small things, asking that the Spirit of God would recall to mind some expression of God's goodness. And then thirdly, we encode that goodness, meaning we write it down or we say it out loud. And that simple act has a profound effect on both your view of God and your view of life. And I want you to notice that last phrase at the end of these verses where Paul says, this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I think that's a pretty powerful phrase. 
Because as Christians, we spend so much time trying to discern the will of God. So this is no small thing when Paul just says, hey, this is God's will for your life. When it comes to God's will, we tend to fixate on his will regarding things like uh, if we should get married or whom we're to marry. We pray about God's will for like, what, what, what job do you want me to pursue? What city do you want me to live in? But do you know that by and large, that's a, that's a relatively new development in Christianity, just so you know. That is referred to as the traditional view of God's will. Ironically, it's only 200 years old. So it's not super traditional. Historically, there are only two categories for God's will. His sovereign will, inside of which everything happens, and his moral will, inside of which what he wants to happen happens. This individual bullseye thing that you've got to be standing on or you're going to completely screw up God's will for your life, that's not a thing. All... Think about the logic of it. One person marries the wrong person. We're all in a heap of trouble, okay? So biblically, that's not really a category. So we get fixated on these individual things, but by and large, when Scripture talks about God's will, it's always focused on the type of person you are becoming through relationship with Jesus. That's God's will. You know what God's will for your life is? That you'd be more Jesus-y today than you were yesterday. And you can do that in any job. You can do that in good times and bad times. You can do it in any city, any country, any time in history. God has ideally set up the circumstances in your life to make you more like Jesus because that is his will for your life. So let's rejoice always. Let's pray constantly. And let's give thanks in everything. Troubled times demand tactical living. And if we are going to live... These lives that are artfully arranged for flourishing, we must pursue communion with God. And then lastly, the fourth mark is discerning God's voice. Discerning God's voice. Let's finish up in verses 19 to 22. Paul says, don't stifle the spirit. Don't despise prophecies, but test all things. Hold on to what is good and stay away from every kind of evil. So notice that this final set of commands center around this experience of stifling the Holy Spirit. Now, the Greek word from which we translate this word stifle literally means to quench or to put out a fire. And so what Paul's saying is that there are things that we can do and there are things that we cannot do in the local church that quite literally quench the fire of the Spirit in our midst, meaning there is more that he wants to do that he doesn't because we stifle it. That's sobering. I don't know about you. I want all that God has for me. Not just like 2%. There's more. And so here he says that we do that when we despise or we disdain prophecy. Now, I would argue that especially in the city we live, it's important for us to really have a biblically formed understanding of what prophecy is and what it is not. Now, according to Paul's teaching in his letter to the Corinthians, the purpose of prophecy was not and is not primarily about predicting the future. And that tends to be what many people, like lots of people have like rapture charts in their basement trying to figure out the book of Ezekiel going like, who's going to be the beast? And it's like, we miss the point. And if that offends you, lighten up, okay? <laughs> in, keep your charts. It's fine. I just would argue you might be missing the point. Instead, get rid of the charts. The charts are not good for anyone. I've never seen a good one. <clears throat> so we miss the point. 
of what, biblical, what biblically prophecy is. Paul says, and you can read about this in 1 Corinthians 14, the purpose of it is mutual strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. Not to predict the future primarily. It's for mutual strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. And so when the scriptures talk about the spiritual gift of prophecy, it refers to this. It is any declaration of the mind, will, or knowledge of God. It is any declaration of the mind, will, or knowledge of God. Now, you've noticed this, I'm sure, by reading this. We're not told specifically why some people in Thessalonica wanted to prohibit the prophetic in their midst. But we do know that during this era, there was rising skepticism of the validity of prophecy. Some people were making their own claims, and they they were putting God's name on it which is like exactly the way that that tends to happen in our own country too. Just because you say, thus saith the Lord, doesn't mean God said it. And many very prominent teachers and speakers are guilty of putting words in God's mouth that he never said. And so what happens is, when good things are abused, our tendency is understandably toward avoidance. But Paul warns, he tells them, and don't, don't throw out the proverbial baby with the bathwater. When we disdain or when we avoid the prophetic, we stifle the Spirit's work in our midst. He has more that we don't experience because we have quenched him. And so instead, Paul says, test all things and hold on to what is good. Another way to say it would be like, eat the fish and spit out the bones. In the early church, this testing of the prophetic uh, had, was really twofold. The first test was the character of the speaker. The second one was the content of the speech. So the question is, is this person living a life that is moving toward Christ-likeness? Because if it's not, then we aren't going to listen to this person. The second question was, is what's being prophesied consistent with God's mind, character, and will as revert, revealed in his word? So if it's not, then we reject it. And we throw it out. So if there's some prophetic word, I don't care whose name's attached to it, and it's in contradiction to what God has said in his word, then it isn't a a true prophetic word from God. And so if it's not, we reject it and we throw it out. If it is, we hold on to what is good. And that phrase, hold on, translates a Greek technical term used to describe holding on to genuine coins and discarding counterfeits. And this is what we do with the prophetic. And there's a prophetic element to preaching, whether it's me or someone else teaching. Anytime someone opens up the word of God and says, this is what God is saying here, that's a prophetic act. To to, to provide counsel to one another is often has a prophetic element to it. There's a prophetic element to some spiritual direction. So regardless of the medium, we are called to test every word against who God is and against what God has said. And when we hold to what is good, two things will happen. The first is we invite the Spirit to do everything that he longs to do, leaving nothing on the table. And then secondly, we are strengthened, encouraged, and comforted. Troubled times demand tactical living. And if we're going to live spiritually tactical lives, we must discern God's voice. Last week, I went for a walk to pray through this message, and um, I found myself talking to God and asking him, why does this matter? 
Like, why, why is this the place that you want our attention? Why are these verses so important for us that some version of them seems to appear in almost every New Testament letter? Why does it matter that we labor as a community to grow in these four marks as a church? And as I was praying, I had this image that came to mind of our church standing at a fork in the road. And in front of us are basically two options. Option number one is a life together marked by these four things. Respect for leaders, care for one another, communion with God, and discerning God's voice. And that option will still have its share of trouble, but we will flourish along the way. But it's not our only option. The second option is a life marked by the absence of these marks. So dishonor instead of respect. Prioritizing self rather than caring for one another. Superficial religiosity instead of communion with God. Stifling the spirit instead of discerning God's voice together. And so what we have to see is that one path has this rich future filled with fruitfulness. And the other results in division and the death of our community. And the truth is, those two options are present to every church. And if you were to go and define, every, every, we, we've all heard, some of us have been a part of these horrific experiences of splits in churches and churches closing. I would argue that 99% of the time, if you were to sit with the people that experienced that and say, what happened? What you would hear is the absence of these four things. Because it just destroys and devastates community. This is Paul going, here's how you hold together and thrive in the midst of troubled times. And when we don't, we fracture and we come apart. And so let's choose the path that Paul has presented, presented us with. Let's respect those who labor among us. Let's care for one another. Let's continue to learn to commune deeply with God and to discern his voice in all things. Troubled times demand this kind of tactical living. And so let's pray and let's ask that God would protect us and empower us to live lives marked by these things. Will you pray with me? Jesus, I am just always so grateful that it isn't on me, it isn't on any one of us to figure out everything in life. There is so much that is essential to the abundant life for which you redeemed us but that you have just been very clear with us on the path towards it. And you're with us in the midst of it. And so often, Lord, we just don't have ears to hear it or hearts to receive it. And so we resist rather than receive what it is that you call us to. And so I just continue to ask, Spirit, that you would soften our heart toward you. That we would be able to hear, that we would be able to see, that we would be able to receive. That we would constantly be adjusting and changing the way that we think 
in the way that we behave, in the way that repentance demands. Lord, the whole of the Christian life that you have called us to is one of repentance, where we are constantly turning away from our own way and turning toward your way. And so, Lord, I just pray over everyone listening, and if there's anyone here that's never made that decision for the first time, would you awaken their hearts to that repentant faith? Would they turn their face toward you and follow you? And Lord, I pray over those of us who have made that decision at some point in our past that that would be our posture. Our face is to you. And we are following you, going where you lead. Lord, would you help us to be these types of people that we have seen described in these verses? We cannot do that without your help and without your grace. So would you help us in Jesus' name?